Beloved, I'm back again. I'm still your interim pastor, uh, Mike. Share it. If you're worshiping with us as a visitor or online, we are so grateful that you're here. Could I get the slide of the four Trinity emphases, the dates, and then the uh, four things we're going to be looking at? Jeff, J- Jesse has encroached on my time. He was supposed to do this at the beginning. There you go. All right. So just want to tell you what's going to happen during the month of August. Every year, we go over the four emphases of what Trinity is all about. This morning, we're looking at worship. Next week, Jesse will preach on community and then on spiritual formation the following week. And Kelly will come up and preach on mission and mercy at the end of the month. So this is a great month to gather our hearts and souls around all that God is calling us to be. I've got worship. Our text is Acts chapter 2. 42 to 47. There's a lengthy outline for you in the bulletin and all the salient points I'll also have up on the screen in terms of slides. So here's our text. This is a topical sermon, beloved. I'm not going to exegete this text. It's topical. It's about worship. And that is going to allow us to kind of go broad and deep in terms of what the Bible as a whole tells us about worship. But here's our jumping off point. Incidentally, let me tell you this. This text is making clear what happened after the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, ascended to his throne in heaven, was given the Holy Spirit by his Father, and poured out his Spirit on his people to make visible the invisible reign of Jesus. Jesus Christ is reigning, has been reigning ever since, is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is making that reign visible by the Holy Spirit doing this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many signs and wonders are being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Forty-four years ago, almost to the day, Janice and I, as newlyweds, attended a Trinity worship service in the chapel at St. Anne's Belfield right up the road. And a revolution began in our hearts God started a worship transformation in our beings that would last forever. Context personally, I grew up going to church. I grew up believing in God. And Sunday after Sunday, I was bored out of my mind. I couldn't wait for church to be over. When that last thing ended the worship service, it was like, great! Now to get on with what I want to do. 
And the revolution we experienced transformed our attitude towards worship profoundly. Now I wanted to go to church. It was the best day of the week. What happened for those 75 minutes transformed everything, sort of a spillover effect, that I did the rest of the week. So I went from being a church attender to becoming a worshiper 24-7. I suspect what I experienced is on par with the folks we read about in this text experienced. You notice the atmosphere of adoration in the text manifested with a, a sense of awe. That's the language of worship. And worship producing uh, devotion to prayer, the word of God, one another, radical generosity. And specifically, verse 47, did you see it? Praising God. And that's got to be an allusion to spontaneous worship as well as planned worship services. So I want to look at worship with answering one simple question. And what a great sermon if you're new to Trinity or new to the Christian faith, because you may have always wondered, why do those people do what they do week in and week out at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning? You're going to get your answer. Why do we worship? Two answers. Number one, we worship God because he deserves it. Now, you don't need to be religious to understand this. Our culture recognizes greatness. We crown the champion. We salute the general. We honor the valedictorian. We award the Pulitzer, the Oscar, the Grammy. Adulation goes to the deserving. We get that principle. Who is more deserving of your adoration than God? He exceeds immeasurably everything in every respect, every moment. God is unlimited in his knowledge, his power, his presence. Maybe a silly illustration. Currently, the population of the world is 8 billion people. You can't wrap your mind around that. You can't wrap your mind around this. God is present right now with all 8 billion. God knows their thoughts even before they think them. God is keeping them alive, giving them breath and the beating of their hearts. God is doing that right now with 8 billion people. We should have jaw-dropping awe of such majesty. So it's no wonder in Psalm 147, verse 5, the psalmist says, Great is our Lord, abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. I think so. And so, beloved, it's no surprise that in heaven, the chorus of those who see God is, You are worthy. Say that with me. You are worthy. The book of Revelation, basically the Apostle John gets to take a knife and slice through the material world, peel back 
the material world and see what's happening in unseen reality. And here's one scene. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, let's say it together, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things by your will. They existed and were created. Do you get the essence of worship? It is a fitting, rational response to God's self-revelation. The elders and the living creatures see God, and they have to irresistibly declare His grace and His glory. So now you know one of the indispensable preconditions for worship. Just if you're going scuba diving, one of the preconditions for scuba diving is having an oxygen tank. You can't go into the water without oxygen. So it's impossible to worship without a humble heart. Because by definition, the humble heart stops self-absorption and gets its eyes on something far greater. The humble heart acknowledges God is supremely superior in matchless, unrivaled glory and magnificence. David, in Psalm 34, captures the connection in a sense between worship and humility. Psalm uh, 34, verse 1. I don't know. I have a slide for that. Yeah. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. There's a worship revolution that started in that man's heart. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Now, here it is. Let the humble hear and rejoice. So the humble hear David praising and they go, that makes me happy. The humble hear other people extolling the glory of God and they go, I'm glad. And they don't stop there. No, no, go back. <laughs> oh, magnify the Lord with it isn't enough. To rejoice when my wife or my daughter or my sons or my friends are praising God. That isn't enough. Magnify him with me. Make him bigger. You do that every Sunday in this worship service. You have done that already in this worship service. Make, that is your greatest need, beloved, all week long. Make him bigger. We'll see why as we move through. So it's no wonder the hymn writers in the Old Testament marvel. They say things like, who is like you? No one compares to you. There's none like you. Do you see, worship is a fitting, humble response to God's worth and beauty. How do you not bless the God from whom all blessings flow? You just did it in the song before the sermon. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. He deserves the praise. So in Revelation 15, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Who won't do that? You are alone, are holy. So do you see? Sorry if I get a little excited about this, but there's a revolution started in my heart. Do you see? God commands your highest and most sincere worship because he deserves it. 
and he supplies the language. Over and over again, you see a variety of words used in the Psalms. Extol, bless, lift up, praise, rejoice in, delight in, sing to, hallelujah, which means let us praise Yah, Yahweh. Now, all these different words. Okay, Psalm 145. Here, here's an example of the overflow of a man who's in whose heart there's a worship revolution. David, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Why? Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Eight billion people. One generation, commend your works. You hear what Jesse said when he sent the children out? He alluded to this. One generation shall commend your works to another and declare your mighty acts. And he goes on and on and on for sake of time. Let me come back and move on. Do you sense in David's heart the irrepressible gushing out of worship? And so it raises what question when you realize God always commands what is good for me. If God commands worship, then what question naturally follows? Am I worshiping appropriately and am I worshiping the right person? That's the question you were wondering. Let's go back to the book that peels back the material world, gives us sight clear into what's happening in the unseen spiritual world that's going to be going on forever and ever. This creation is passing away. We want to know what's going on where things last. What's going on there? Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song saying, let's say the first three words together, worthy are you. Are you sure? Again, Worthy are you. This is what they're saying. Worthy are you to take the scroll. They're speaking to Jesus. And to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. We want some of that variety manifested in our midst if God would give us the grace. And you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. John the Apostle writing, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. Can you picture this? Thousands and thousands of angels saying with a loud voice. What are they saying? Worthy is the Lamb. Say it again. Worthy is the Lamb. They never tire of saying it. And we will be declaring that tirelessly and endlessly for all eternity. Let me read on. I could get caught up in all of this. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth, in the sea, and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And God's people at Trinity said, Amen. Okay. What is the distinct focus of this worship? It's God the Father on the throne and co-equally Jesus Christ. Christ the mediator. Christ the conqueror. Look at the language that is used. This is language that will be proclaimed forever, beloved. 
You, by your blood, you ransomed the people for God. You're the lamb that was slain to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Right now and forever, this is really important. The nature of worship in this universe, it is addressed to Jesus Christ, the sacrificial sacrifice for sinners. Christ is exalted for his salvation on the cross. They don't get tired of it. We'll never get tired of it. That's why every worship service at Trinity is focused on this sacrifice. Christ is adored for laying down his life for his enemies, for ransoming of the people by his blood as the Lamb of God that was slain. Do you see how informative this is? Everybody in heaven is there without sin. What does this tell you? It tells you that the human response, the response of the human heart when there is no sin, when our, when our sight is not of God is not shrouded by sin, what is the response of the human heart? It is to worship, which tells you what's wrong with the world. What is ultimately wrong with this life? It isn't injustice. It isn't pollution. It isn't corruption. It isn't murder. It isn't uh, all kinds of abuse. Those are ultimately fruits of what is fundamentally wrong with this world, and that is what? God is not receiving the worship he deserves. You live and work with people who are very nice and very smart and very productive and very delightful, but the ultimate thing wrong with them, if they're not believers in Jesus, is they owe God their worship, their devotion, their obedience, their resources, their hearts. That's what's wrong with this world. God is not getting the worship he deserves so that when you worship, beloved, you are setting the world right. Because what is sin? It's any failure to give God the honor, the glory, the delight, the praise, the obedience, the all that he deserves. So if you heard Sarah pray earlier, you heard her confess this happened to me as the worship revolution took place in my heart. I realized, oh, now I know why I'm satisfied with so little of God. I don't see him. If I saw him, I'd never want to leave his presence. So as we finish this first point, how do you know the revolutions, the worship revolution has begun in you? I'll give you a couple markers. What you do Sunday morning has shifted from duty to delight. Kids, your parents may drag you to church and you're like, I get it, it was me. You need to ask Jesus to show his love to you in such a way that it becomes a delight. Another evidence is you, you have an increasing hunger for the Word of God. This happened to Janice and me. We were fed the Word of God. We developed a hunger for the Word. Why? Because we wanted to know more the God we were worshiping. He re reveals himself in his Word. He wants to be known. And so I have to stop the temptation to take God on my own terms and learn what it means to the self-revelation in his Word to take him on his terms. 
That's a sign that the worship revolution has begun. One more sign. You have what I'm just calling the voice of desperation before the Lord. Psalm 143, verse 7. Just look at the desperation. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Crying out to God in whatever sense of desperation you are. Crying out. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning your steadfast love, for in you I trust. For me, that translates into this. I need every morning for Jesus Christ to pour his love into my heart, to show me the expense and cost of that love, the horrific cross. I need to be confronted every morning with what Jesus did to make me the object of his love. I need to get the cross before me. I need to see the glory of his righteousness, the hope of his resurrection, and that I crucified Jesus. And the humble, praiseful response to that, I need to hear his love in the morning or I will find false lovers during the day. Jesus saves you by revealing his love to you. That's the first answer to the question. I think it's going to take longer than the second answer. Why do we worship? He deserves it. Are you convinced? And why does he deserve it? Three words. You are worthy. One more time. You are worthy. Secondly, worship is the most fundamental expression of your humanity. Now, everybody in our culture is excited to find their most authentic and robust self. Right? We're all about that. I, I want to be, be my true self. And the Bible tells you you are never more what you created to be than when you worship Jesus. You are never more what you were created to be than when you worship Jesus. See, God hardwired, this language was also used earlier in the service, God hardwired you for worship. He made life, human life, to work one way, and that is with a worship relationship with himself. It only works the way God designed it. One way with a worship relationship with himself. And that means this, fundamentally. You admit the obvious. You didn't create yourself. God did. Therefore, you owe him all of your allegiance, all of your adoration, all of your affection, all of your attention. That's obvious. Anything contrary we call sin. And beloved, just as my car engine has a fuel relationship with gas, not water, that's going to destroy it. Life is designed to have a worship relationship with Jesus. And once sin entered the world, we said, I don't want God. I want life on my terms. And we're still worshipers, though. So look how Paul Triphook, actually this is on his book on marriage called What Were You Expecting? Ha ha, what a great title for a book on marriage. But... <laughs> Great book. Here, here's what Paul Tripp says. When the Bible says that we are worshipers, it means that every human being lives for something. All of us are digging for treasure. All of us are in pursuit of some kind of dream. Behind everything we do is some kind of hope. Every one of us is in constant pursuit of life. Being a worshiper means you attach your identity, your meaning, your purpose, your inner sense of well-being to something. You either get these things vertically from the creator or you look to get them horizontally from the creation. Good stuff. 
So if your identity, beloved, comes from anything but God, that thing is a false god. It's an idol. So one of our favorite authors in, in this congregation is Tim Keller. Here's what Tim Keller writes in this book, Counterfeit Gods. Very good book on idols. Keller says, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I had that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best is worship. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and, or identity, then it's an idol. Many people look to these things, love, family, money, power, achievement, status, health, beauty, prowess, for the hope, meaning, and fulfillment that only God can provide. What's the point? We have a natural aversion to God, so we're going to worship something else quite easily. Quite easily. Here's one of the ways I was convicted of that in my own experience. Read Psalm 33, verse 8. Let all the earth fear him. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. When was the last time you stood in awe of God for 60 seconds? No, all you did was just stand and silently stood in awe of him with your whole being for a minute, two minutes. <laughs> Why should we? He deserves it. So, beloved, we have this profound need to be delivered from self-absorption. And there's one man who can do it. Jesus Christ. Jesus reveals to you the glory of your God. Jesus reveals to you the beauty of humanity. Jesus laid his life down for your salvation so you have nothing to prove, nothing to lose. He absolutely makes you ravishingly beautiful in the sight of his Father through his own righteous acts and his death on the cross. He guarantees you a place in heaven by raising from the dead. Oh, this is why we sing to and sing about Jesus every Sunday here. We haven't sung it yet, but one of my favorite songs about Jesus, we might, is by Samuel Stennett called To Christ the Lord. I learned about it through Indelible Grace music. Anybody a fan of Indelible Grace music? Came out of our... Come on, any fans out there? Come on, get them up. All right, we're going to make you fans, maybe. Indelible Grace, To Christ the Lord. Here's one verse from it. To him I owe my life and breath and all the joys I have. He makes me triumph over death and saves me from the grave. To heaven, the place of his abode, he brings my weary feet, shows me the glories of my God, and makes my joy complete. See the facts? His gifts are so abundant, his character so compelling, I can't not adore him. One more verse. Look at this. Since from his bounty I receive such proofs of love divine, had I a thousand hearts to give, Lord, they should all be thine. A thousand men could not compose a worthy song to bring, yet your love is a melody our hearts can't help but sing. So the intensity of our delight matches the glory of the messenger and his message. This is precisely why the Apostle Peter tells you you were saved to be a worshiper. 1 Peter 2, 9. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That, that, this is why you're saved. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is what you do every Sunday here. 
you proclaim his excellencies. Why? Because he is worthy. <laughs> oh, in darkness, look, once you were not a people, now you're God's people. You had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. In, in darkness, you had no apprehension of God's mercy. In the light, you see Christ. You see his mercy, and you make that the boast of your soul. There's a, a man in the Old Testament who wrote a psalm all about being kind of out of his mind. He was jealous of the uh, he was jealous of successful people, jealous of the prosperous. His name was Asaph. He wrote a, a reflection on a worship transformation that took um, took place in his heart. And now in Psalm 73, verse 21, he wrote this, reflecting back on it. When my soul was embittered and I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant like a beast before you. That's me when I'm not in worship like a beast before the Lord. So let me end by answering, helping you with this question. How do you keep the revolution? I'm going to assume a, revol a worship revolution has started in your soul. How do you keep it going? How do you foster it? You've got to do battle. You've got to engage in constant warfare. For example, you need to battle for superior glories. Sin always promises you a kind of passing pleasure. It promises you a kind of glory, or you wouldn't sin. <laughs> There's one power to rescue your soul from giving in to inferior glories, and that is the greater glory of who God is. When I sin, I have chosen something. I'm not seeing how much more delightful God is. This is hard. This is a hard battle. You know it because you sin all week, and so do I. We're not real good at this. But coming out of the month of August with these sermons, you're going to be great at this. <laughs> and then finally, you're constantly battling the dangers associated with corporate worship. Who knew when you walked in those doors at, when did we start? 8.30 this morning? No, that was my Sunday school class. When you walked in here at 9.30, next week, what time is it? 10.15. When you, did you know there were dangers associated with coming to corporate worship? One of them is just going through the motions. So Jesus, quoting Isaiah 29, 13, said this in Matthew 15 about essentially the most religious people on the face of the earth at the time. You know what he said? These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It is very possible for you to say everything you're supposed to say in this worship service and have your heart far from God. <gasps> That's a horror. That's a terror. Isn't it? Are you scared to death of that happening to you? You should be. You should be afraid of that. And it's especially dangerous in a service like this. This is a very liturgical service where you say the same thing every week. You can go brain dead. You can, you've memorized it, right? You've said the same, brothers and sisters, walk and wash away our sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You can say that week in and week out and not engage with the reality. It's very easy to do. I'm not criticizing it. I'm saying it's hard. It's dangerous. So here's, here, here, here's a suggestion to save you from that. You need to think of what you do here as a, as a deposit 
that you are worshiping privately all week long. You're reading the Bible, you're engaging with the Lord quietly, privately, you're singing to Him. The former church planter here, Skip Ryan, I heard his wife say one time, Barbara, she said, I get out the hymnal and I sing in my devotions. They went, wow, what a great idea. So I started singing in my devotions, not necessarily out loud. And I realized in my worship revolution, all the commands in Scripture to sing to the Lord I could never fulfill in 75 minutes Sunday morning. So I make singing a part of my devotional life. And so all week long, I'm developing worship equity, equity, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And what happens Sunday? I come and dump it. Let me tell you, when every person in this room does that, you'll know. That's all I'll say. You'll know. You will know. So that's an invitation. This isn't enough worship, and not in these 75 minutes. And then lastly, a danger, don't leave your worship here. <laughs> Take it with you. You're a worshiper. You're living to the praise of the glory of God. Everything you do, everything is a response to his love and grace for you in Jesus. All of your life is an act of worship. And maybe, just maybe, God will be adding to our number those who are being saved because of that. Let's pray. You are worthy, and my brothers and sisters know that. Thank you for the worship revolution you started in their hearts. Use us to continue a worship revolution in this precious city. For the glory of the Lamb who was praised eternally as that Lamb slain to purchase for a people by His blood from every tribe and tongue. To the glory of the Lamb. Amen.